Cancer Advances, a Cleveland Clinic podcast for medical professionals, exploring the latest innovative research and clinical advances in the field of oncology. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Cancer Advances. I'm your host, Dr. Dale Shepard, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic overseeing our TOSIC Phase 1 and sarcoma programs. Today, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Sunil Kamath, a medical oncologist here at Cleveland Clinic specializing in gastrointestinal cancers. Is here today to talk to us about disparities in research funding, including work he presented at the recent ASCO conference. Welcome, Sunil. Thanks for having me, Dale. Absolutely. So, to start, maybe you can tell us a little bit about your role here at Cleveland Clinic. Definitely. Yes, yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm a medical oncologist. I focus predominantly on GI cancers. Um, in addition to studying, you know, novel therapies for GI cancer and other aspects of clinical research. I've also always had an interest in investigating sort of the intersection of media and advocacy efforts and how those might affect um, cancer research and outcomes as well. So a perfect opportunity to be on a podcast. That's right. Yeah, absolutely. Well, today we're going to discuss research you presented at ASCO about disparities in, in both government funding and nonprofit um, organizations funding research and how that can affect cancers with high mortality rates. So maybe to start, tell us a little bit about the background behind that and the goal of the study, kind of, you know, what led to the interest and what were you hoping to learn? Yeah, definitely. It was it's actually started quite a few years ago now. So it was back when I was in fellowship. I was in a GI cancer clinic and I, I realized just how common colorectal cancer really is and how little I had heard about it, even as someone interested in oncology and in GI cancer. So it got me thinking, you know, why is it that I really don't hear anything about this? And I was, as I was leaving clinic that afternoon, I went outside. All of the columns to the front of the hospital were gilded in pink ribbons. You know, breast cancer this, breast cancer that. I turned on the baseball game that night. Pink bats, pink gloves, all of this stuff. You know, and it just got me thinking, you know, like with so many things in life, it must have something to do with money. So I started tracking that. And it just led to, you know, all of this data that we're going to talk about today. Excellent. So maybe give us a little background. What, what did you look at and what were some of the findings? Yeah, so what I did was I started looking at nonprofit groups that have at least $5 million of funding, mostly just to help me sort of find you know, the most groups that I can find. And I just looked at which ones were supporting which causes and totaled those up uh, over a four-year period because that's what was available the last time that I looked. Uh, and then I also included um, the same type of data uh, from the National Cancer Institute as well, the NCI, um, and just put them together, you know, just see, you know, in a four-year period or in a given year, how many dollars are going to each cancer, both from the NCI and from nonprofit charities. And then the next step was seeing if those things lined up with the incidence and the mortality rates for each of those cancers to see if those really lined up or not. Because as I suspected, they probably don't and certainly found that that was the case. Uh, we definitely found, you know, I think um, a number are very underfunded. Generally speaking, those are in GI, GU, and then and gynecologic malignancies. Um, and that seemed to be pretty true across the board, you know, both for incidence and for mortality rates. What were the biggest surprises? Big surprises, I think, were, you know, I, I anticipated finding a number of a number of underfunded cancers that would be rare, you know, sarcomas or head and neck cancer or things like that that are less common. But what I was surprised to find was there were so many that are really, you know, lung cancer, you know, the highest cause of cancer-related death, 
was also very underfunded. Colorectal cancer, you know, these aren't ones that I think, I would think a general person off of the street would say, oh, I've never heard of that before. You know, I think most have at least heard something about it. Um, but to find that those were also dramatically underfunded was, was really surprising. When you think about, you mentioned incidence and mortality, and they're both important. So, you know, when you think about some, are, some cancers are very, very common, but they're not likely to be lethal. And so you think about prostate or something like that in a lot of cases. But then there are others like pancreas that, you know, the incidence might be lower, but, you know, pretty lethal. And so were there any surprises in terms of that sort of split in terms of focus and research dollars? Oh, yeah, definitely. I think I found that for incidents, there was actually a really good, a relatively good correlation. So for, you know, every additional case there was of a particular cancer, the dollars pretty well lined up with that. Um, but it was really with, when I looked at mortality rates that you saw a big disparity. So ones that had, you know, exactly as you mentioned, pancreatic cancer is a great example, a low incidence rate, but a very high mortality rate. Those are ones that I found that the dollars just didn't line up. So what's next with this particular line of research? Where, where are you going with it at this point? So what I'm trying to do, you know, I think is, you know, this is a, a message I think that really needs to be shared and spread. I think, you know, the, the data are there, um, but I think it's really getting people to, to hear it and to, to, to broaden that audience. One thing that, you know, what I learned from all of this is that right now we mostly fund causes that things are already going well for. You know, if they're common, but the outcomes are good, people like funding that. You know, it's easy to, to have a survivor that had that cancer 30 years ago, you know, come to a football game and, you know, do the toss and whatnot. And, and it's, it's a great story. You know, they bring their kids and everything, you know, so it's a great story. And so I, I understand, you know, that is a really great thing to fund and we should. Um, but I think we also need sort of a separate messaging in cancer research and advocacy that, you know, is more focused on, you know, how can we make progress in other diseases like pancreatic, like lung, like a number of, of GI cancers. Because, you know, for those diseases, you know, the hope there is it's not a given. You know, we really have to earn it. Um, and we're going to earn that with more money, with more resources, with more time. Um, and until we really do that, I think we're really not going to make progress with those diseases. It's easy to root for the winning team. What do you think is going to make the biggest impact? I mean, how do we how do we start driving that change? I mean, you're absolutely right. We need to, um, you know, it's, it's shocking when you look at the number of open clinical trials for really common diseases like colon and pancreas um, compared to even rare things. So what, what do you think is going to be the impetus to make the change? You know, I think the big thing is, yeah, I think just getting the word out that that Right now, you know, there are a number of diseases that I think we could make progress on if we put the resources into it. You know, as you mentioned, yeah, one of the other findings I found was that there was a nearly perfect correlation between dollars and number of clinical trials out there for a particular disease. And I think that's obvious probably to most people, but I think, you know, sharing that with stakeholders that are involved, you know, whether it's people who are on scientific advisory boards for various nonprofits, or for, you know, speaking to people involved in the government as far as funding mechanisms are concerned. I think getting that message to them is really important. I also think, you know, especially with a number of these cancers, many of them are actually affecting people who are younger these days. Um, and that might be a nice avenue as far as the media is concerned, because I do suspect, you know, there's probably some interplay between these charities and nonprofits influencing government funding patterns. You know, if there's more pressure, more uh, lobbying for those causes. I'm sure there are more, more dollars that will come from the NCI. 
So I'm hoping, you know, maybe these younger people who are affected by these cancers might also be more vocal um, in public spaces like social media, and maybe that can start some change. So with the whole thought about social media, what uh, what role do you think like advocacy groups and things like that can play? So most of these diseases have patient support groups and advocacy groups. Are there things they can be doing to sort of step up not just awareness, but research dollars in philanthropy? Yeah, I think, you know, one thing, uh, I go back to, to breast cancer just because, you know, honestly, maybe 50 years ago, breast cancer was also a very poorly funded thing. Um, it was considered a, quote, you know, shameful or embarrassing thing to talk about. Um, I've looked at some clippings of uh, stories of this from newspapers referring to it as chest cancer because it was, you know, not appropriate to talk about, you know, at the time. It seems ridiculous now, but, you know, it was true. And, of course, it was whispered because you didn't even say cancer. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, it was grandma upstairs in the, in the attic or something, you know. And, but, and, you know, they really turned that whole thing around, and, and they should have. You know, it was something that needed to be talked about, needed to be addressed. So I think, you know, it's probably a couple things. You know, I think it's just talking about it. You know, it's, part of it, I think, with the, the areas I talked about, you know, GI, GYN, you know, these are, quote, you know, down there type of diseases, right? You know, there are areas we don't like to talk about or maybe a little uncomfortable. But I think owning it, you know, similar to how, you know, patients with breast cancer did, you know, say, hey, yeah, this is my life and, you know, I need this problem addressed. You know, I, this can't keep happening to other people like me. Um, so I think really owning that is really important. Um, and just being vocal, you know, it's, it's you know, I, I hate to saddle patients who are struggling with their own disease, you know, with another thing, another mission to try to, you know, improve outcomes, whatnot. But, but I do think that's an important part of it, you know, is to, to really be vocal um, throughout the course of your, your treatment and then after treatment as well, because, you know, they really are the, are the main drivers and the main advocates for this. And so, you know, I guess the other thing would be social media and, you know, certainly through, you know, a lot of these, these, uh, these diseases, there are Facebook groups and, and, you know, things like that. So, that might also be another avenue in terms of clinical trials, even, and things like that. Do you see that playing a, a role as well? Definitely. I think, you know, yeah, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, whatever's going to come next. Uh, absolutely. I think that's a really big um, source. You know, it's, it's amazing there, you know, in particular, you can never predict which message is going to catch fire. You know, it's, it could be something very simple that I think most people, if you ask, you know, who tweeted or posted something that went, went viral, I think most of them would say, I had no idea that that thing today would be the one that would, would happen. So I do think, you know, the more, you know, messaging we put out there, you know, from patient advocates and everything, the higher likelihood there is something that really catches on. Throw lots of things out there and see what sticks. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think we're familiar with that in, in, in research. And I think the same is true really in social media. What about, uh, so we've, we've talked about funding and and clinical research, how has this impacted basic science research? Because a lot of the clinical work comes from um, what we learn in, in the lab. Um, do, do we suspect there are similar problems with basic science funding? And are there similar ways we can try to boost sort of from the very beginning interest in funding these sorts of diseases? Yeah, I'm sure, you know, the, the data that I've collected so far, you know, it's a little challenging to drill down in terms of where dollars are going in terms of, you know, along the spectrum of basic and translational and clinical research. Um, but I strongly suspect that, that it does affect uh, what happens in the lab, you know, especially I think for junior investigators who often rely on, on nonprofit, you know, early seed grants and everything to get started. 
um, to get that preliminary data to get a K or an, or an R1 or something. Um, so I definitely think that matters. You know, um, you know, one thing that's uh, what's also struck me, you know, just in my practice the last few years is the number of drugs that I see, you know, for pancreas, for colorectal, for endometrial, you know, just looking at the approvals that come out, the number that are truly unique to these diseases is extremely few. Almost all of them were originally developed in melanoma or lung cancer, you know, even these newer, you know, KRAS targeting drugs, a lot of them were developed in lung cancer first and then sort of find their way into um, the GI or GYN space. And I think a lot of that does come down to, you know, there's probably inadequate funding for exploring pathways that specifically affect these cancers. Um, so I think that's both, you know, from nonprofits, but also from the NCI. You know, I think uh, the government's so important for funding, you know, early in basic research, especially. So I think that probably is a, a major, you know, unmet need. And I guess it's uh, disappointing to hear about the correlation between um, government and nonprofit support and clinical trials, because certainly in cancer, a lot of those clinical trials come from industry. And so one might think, well, maybe there wasn't a need for government or nonprofit support because the you know industry is taking care of those trials. But it sounds like that's not the, the case either. And so it sounds like that's another area where there needs to be maybe a little more advocacy to push for development. Definitely. Yeah, that was that was disappointing for sure to, to see, you know, I think because I would also view, you know, government really should be you know, one of its main functions should be to to look for gaps, you know, what the private sector doesn't currently provide and ensure that those gaps are filled, you know, for needs that are out there. So, yeah, I had hoped when I had added in the NCI data, I would find that it was sort of plugging these holes uh, for the diseases that were not funded well, but I actually found that it sort of just followed the exact same pattern. Um, so that's another thing, you know, I would hope, you know, I think with, with more knowledge of this evidence, uh, that maybe there would be more thoughts towards that. You know, not taking away money from diseases that currently things go well, because certainly people do still die of, you know, the best funded I found were breast cancer, leukemia, and lymphoma. There's certain, certainly very aggressive cases of all three of these diseases. So there's certainly, you know, a lot more work to, to be done there. I found, you know, just as an example of breast cancer, there was almost $4 billion of funding over the four years that I looked at versus colorectal was about a, a less than a billion dollars. You know, incidence is about half, but actually mortality-wise, there are about 10,000 more deaths from colorectal cancer a year than breast cancer. So, you know, I think you could maybe justify based on the incidence having slightly less funding for colorectal cancer, but to have that be a four-to-one ratio uh, seems excessive. It does seem excessive. And, and I guess, is do you think there's a problem because they're seen as sort of, I mean, I guess because they're common, are they seen as not particularly interesting from a research standpoint by some? And so, as you mentioned before, like drugs for KRAS mutations, for instance, or RET mutations, and we're getting so specialized within diseases. Are we, are we losing sight of what's important? Is that maybe what's driving part of this? That as we, as we take a somewhat common disease and make it a rare disease really by focusing too much there are really large segments of the population we ignore. Yeah, I definitely think that's a big, big part of it. You know, the, the whole precision medicine explosion has been really exciting for certain diseases like lung cancer, for example. But you're absolutely right. You know, in colorectal cancer, the subsets we're talking about here are tiny. You know, MSI has been a great story, but it's 5%, you know, the metastatic population. 
the the KRAS G12C that the current drugs are, that are out there for are also, you know, probably one or two percent of colorectal. So yeah, I think part of that is I think it's probably just easier to do that, you know, to find a particular target and make a drug that targets that particular mutation. I think it's a lot harder to find one that is truly efficacious for an entire disease population. And maybe that's where more focus toward common diseases and sort of those individual components that might make them more treatable might be uh, might be a key. But we have to at least uh, put the time and energy into it, right? Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, and I think, you know, that's the... And I think the patients are so important for advocating for that type of change, you know, to say, yeah, it's great. You know, you might look at, you know, just thinking about colorectal cancer again, you know, with the MSI population with pepralizumab and uh, the BRAF population, you know, having the beacon regimen there now. Um, you know, I've talked to several patient advocates about those trials, in particular the beacon one. Um, you know, and they talk about, you know, you, you see the presentations at ASCO and everything, and they say, oh, yeah, what a breakthrough, what a major advance. And they say, you know, well, well the difference, survival difference was about three to four months. You know, you know I'm 36. Ha, you know, that... Would you think that's breakthrough at age 36? And, you know, I think I'd say that's a completely reasonable assessment of that presentation. You know, I think to call a three to four month gain a breakthrough. I mean, I understand from an oncologist perspective, BRAF mutated colorectal cancer is terrible. So anything that works is exciting. Um, but, you know, that type of messaging, you know, I think is something I hope patient advocates bring up more um, and bring up in government forums, you know, bring up on social media to say, yeah, you know, this this came out last year, but we're not satisfied. You know, this this works a lot better in melanoma than it does for me. Um, we need we need something else. I mean, it's an interesting uh, an interesting point. You you we started out. You were talking about your your interest in like how media and social media and things impacts what we do and how we we see the world. Um, but it's a great point. Do you think at some at some level um, the hype sort of makes people think that there's not a real need? Because, uh, you know, if, again, for colorectal, uh, you know, certainly BRAF, you know, you, you talk three or four month advantage, but everything approved before that was about a month and a half survival benefit. And, and, and you're exactly right. Everyone's like, how's that exciting? Um, and so when you see the splashy headlines about a big breakthrough, does that sort of lull us into thinking there's not a problem anymore? And so maybe we need to do a better job exactly like you said of messaging. Um, are we kind of doing this to ourselves by being overly optimistic? Yeah, I think that's part of it. You know, I think I think we're so desperate for something, you know, in diseases like colorectal. As you said, you know, the last approval before, you know, pembrolizumab and the Beacon Regimen was, I don't know, probably a EGFR inhibitor, you know, many years ago, you know, panitumumab probably. Or regorafenib. Oh, yeah, regorafenib probably, yeah. yeah, which, I mean, that's nothing to celebrate, as you know. <laughs> um, but, you know, I think... Yeah, I think a lot of it, you know, when you're so desperate to have something show progress, I think, yeah, there's a tendency to over-celebrate that. I think there's also, you know, because so much of the messaging in for cancer research and for advocacy is about hope. And I think we're so desperate to align with that, um, that we spin things that are really modest gains into being, you know, a big-time breakthrough. You know, I think if you're a donor, if you're, even if you're the NCI, you know, you would say... I'm hoping, you know, to invest in something and get a, a return on that investment within a year or two. Um, I can tell you, you know, you're not going to see that in pancreatic cancer. You know, that's going to be a 10-year struggle. 
But, you know, the, if we don't start that clock, you know, with the investment now, we're never going to get there. So, yeah, I do think, you know, our sort of drive to create hope and hope messaging can maybe lull us into a false sense of security that this is getting taken care of. And then, you know, the, like you said, you know, rooting for the winning team, it's, it makes it more likely you want to do things like study intrek fusions where you have, you know, great responses rather than uh, what we get with most therapies. So, Oh, yeah. And I do think, you know, the funding landscape, you know, has shifted so much towards pharma, you know, the dollars there are just so much greater. Um, and I think they're also, you know, because, especially if you're thinking about, you know, if you're an entrepreneur with a small, you know, single molecule company, um, you know, I don't know that I would wage, you know, or wade into the pancreatic cancer space at this point, you know, your likelihood of a failure in that disease is going to be much higher, you know, whereas exactly as you mentioned, you know, making a seventh generation N-TRAC drug, you know, or a ninth generation EGFR drug or whatever, you know, you're much more likely to get a bang for your buck. Um, either your drug works or you get acquired by another company, you know, so I think all of that, you know, the rooting for the winning team absolutely is a very challenging hill to climb, but, I, but it's definitely one we need to. Definitely something we need to address. So um, it's uh, it's been great insight. So um, Dr. Kamath will be joining us again on the Cancer Advances podcast to discuss young onset colorectal cancer outcomes and disparities associated with outcomes for patients with colorectal cancer. So um, in the meantime, appreciate you being with us today. Thanks for having me, Dale. This concludes this episode of Cancer Advances. You will find additional podcast episodes on our website, clevelandclinic.org slash podcast. Subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget, you can access real-time updates from Cleveland Clinic's Cancer Center experts on our Consult QD website at consultqd.clevelandclinic.org slash cancer. Thank you for listening. Please join us again soon.